Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So I am going to read you a chapter. Uh, it's, a, it's a pivotal chapter from the Old Testament book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. Uh, and it's going to be chapter 14. This is leading up to the moment where Israel finally breaks ties of oppression and slavery that they felt in Egypt, where they escape the hand of Pharaoh and escape into the freedom, if you will. I was about to say into the promised land, but they don't get there for quite some time. But they move from slavery into a period of serving God himself. This is Exodus chapter 14. I'll try to inflect it with a little bit of uh, drama for you as you listen to these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and set up camp in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-Zaphon. You should set up camp in front of it by the sea. Pharaoh will think to himself, the Israelites are lost and confused in the land. The desert has trapped them. I'll make Pharaoh stubborn and he'll chase them. I'll gain honor at the expense of Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did exactly that. When Egypt's king was told that the people had run away, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people. They said, what have we done letting Israel go free from their slavery to us? So he sent for his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 elite chariots and all of Egypt's other chariots with captains on all of them. The Lord made Pharaoh, Egypt's king, stubborn. And he chased the Israelites who were leaving confidently. The Egyptians, including all of Pharaoh's horse-drawn chariots, his cavalry, and his army, chased them and caught them as they were camped by the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zaphon. As Pharaoh drew closer, the Israelites looked back and saw the Egyptians marching toward them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you took us away to die in the desert? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt like this? Didn't we tell you the same thing in Egypt? Leave us alone. Let us work for the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians than to die in the desert. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand your ground and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never, ever see. You will never, ever see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to get moving. This is a really strange side note. This is a really strange juxtaposition in the text that has caused a lot of Jewish interpreters to wonder, what in the world is God talking about here? Why is he saying to Moses, why do you cry out to me? And it's interesting because a lot of Jewish interpreters have made up stories that go in between uh, verse 14 and 15 to explain why God might say that. Back to the reading of scripture. As for you, Moses, lift your shepherd's rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and split it in two so that the Israelites can go into the sea on dry ground. But me, I'll make the Egyptians stubborn so that they will go in after them and I'll gain honor at the expense of Pharaoh, all his army, his chariots, and his cavalry. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain honor at the expense of Pharaoh, his chariots, and his cavalry. God's messenger who had been in front of Israel's camp, moved and went behind them. The column of cloud moved from the front and took its place behind them. It stood between Egypt's camp and Israel's camp. The cloud remained there, and when darkness fell, it lit up the sky. They didn't come near each other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord pushed the sea back by a strong east wind all night, turning the sea into dry land. If you have happened to see, this is me, not the Bible, if you have happened to see the movie The Ten Commandments, you might remember uh, a scene with the striking of the sea, with the staff. There's other ancient Jewish stories where Moses is not just picking up and raising his staff and the wind is doing the work, but Moses is striking the sea and the sea immediately goes up into two walls. Okay, back to the reading of scripture as soon as I find it. The Israelites walked into the sea on dry ground. The waters formed a wall for them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians chased them and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and cavalry. As morning approached, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian camp and from the column of lightning and cloud, and he threw the Egyptian camp into panic. The Lord jammed their chariot wheels so that they couldn't turn away easily. The Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water comes back and covers the Egyptians, their chariots, and their cavalry. Have you noticed how much I am struggling with that word tonight, friends? Good gravy, Moses. Don't mind me. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. At daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. The Egyptians were driving toward it, and the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the cavalry. Pharaoh's entire army that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. The Israelites, however, walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters formed a wall for them on their right hand and on their left. The Lord rescued Israel from the Egyptians that day. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the amazing power of the Lord against the Egyptians. The people were in awe of the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Word of God for the people of God. So this is a long reading of scripture, but this is one of the fundamental stories of the Old Testament and the Jewish people. 
Some scholars have said that whereas Christians have the fundamental and foundational story of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jewish readers of scripture will go back to the Exodus as this climactic moment where God redeems his people, where he removes them from slavery and brings them into freedom and life. The Exodus story, uh, for these reasons and others, has become paradigmatic for people as they, as they try to understand the work of God and how God um, will move amongst his people. Pete N. says the Exodus is the inception of Israel's existence as a people. It does not simply deliver them from slavery. It is also the event that forms them, that gives them their beginning. This is the foundational, fundamental story with which if we are to understand the people of God at all, we must understand the extravagance and the redemption that we see in this particular narrative. As a result, Jewish believers and Israelites throughout their their history, they retell this story over and over, or better, they allude to it over and over. They reuse it, they appeal to it, they apply it as if to say that God will do the same things that God has done in the past if we trust God in these moments. If you happen to be an Old Testament scholar or just one who loves the Old Testament, you may have seen these motifs of God delivering his people in the Exodus reappear throughout scripture. For example, in Joshua chapter 3, this might be the most overt parallel with the Exodus story because in the book of Joshua, we have is a transition of power. Moses has led the people. He has taken them from slavery into freedom. Although the people have been callous, they have been jaded, they have not been following God with obedience, and they have suffered punishments because of that. And as a result, Moses himself was not allowed to lead the people into the promised land. Some scholars would even say that the Old Testament at its core, it's about land because God has promised his people a name, descendants, kings, and land. And this whole Old Testament narrative, it circles around the entrance of Israel into the promised land and them staying in the land, or as we will see, them not staying in the land. Moses was an important uh, figure in this whole story, but when Moses passes away, there's a transfer of power from Moses to Moses' aide named Joshua. And in this story, we see Joshua beginning to move the people across the Jordan River to position them into the promised land, to become the one who takes the people of God from their wilderness wanderings after the time of the Exodus in Egypt into the land that God has given to them, the land that God has promised his people. This is a really important thing for us to hold on to because the whole Old Testament, it centers upon this use of of, of land and the imagery that we will see. In fact, in this passage, God says to Joshua, I will make you great in the opinion or in the eyes of all of Israel. Joshua, we have had these conversations and now I'm going to show all of them what I have told you. If you just go and you lead these people, be strong and courageous, Joshua. This is your crew of of people and I will lead you and I will guide you. And just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And as they are poised to enter into the promised land, there's this 
pivotal moment where they are crossing over the Jordan River. And in order for this to happen, Joshua instructs the priests to take up the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, it symbolizes God's very presence with his people. This was an important artifact that would demonstrate that God is with his people always and forever. And when the priests who are holding the Ark of the Covenant, when the very soles of their feet, the Hebrew Bible says, when it hits the water, the water will be completely removed into two walls of water. When the soles of their feet hit, it will be cut off. It will stand still in a single heap. The Bible also makes clear that this is a time, according to the story, when the Jordan River was overflowing. When the rivers were rushing, if you will, and when the priests hit the water, it all is removed into a single heap. Some of the same shared language with the Exodus account. All Israel, therefore, crossed over the Jordan River during its peak flood season on dry land, just like we have seen en masse in the story of the Exodus. God separating the waters so that people could walk through on dry land. We see this being reenacted in the book of Joshua. And along the way, there's one more tie to the story of, of, the, of the Exodus. As the people are walking through, Joshua instructs one person from each of the 12 tribes to pick up a stone and at the end of their journey through there to make a pillar that symbolizes what God has done. In fact, it says in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? These stones that have been picked up from the bed of the Jordan River. You should tell them that Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. Very early on, the Exodus motif is being reused and reapplied and reimagined in this story. Again, Peden says the crossing of the Jordan is not simply another display of God's power. It's not just a party trick. It's not just a miracle in the Old Testament. It is linked, intimately linked. It's another exodus. It's a reenactment of the Red Sea crossing. For these people of faith, looking back to that pivotal moment where God takes his family out of slavery and into freedom, it's something that keeps happening over and over and over. And in the book of Joshua, this is something that we see with all clarity because we have this monumental miracle where the water is being taken so that people can cross over on dry land. This new generation of Israelites, they participate in the exodus in this moment. Now, that one might be a familiar story to you. This one, I can assure you, is probably not. We find ourselves in the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at chapters 4 through chapter 6, and I won't uh, rehash this with a lot of detail for you. I guess that's kind of subjective. You might think it's too much detail, but I don't, so there. In this story, we have a, um, a moment in Israel's history before they have kings, this is uh, leading up to that moment with the installation of Saul as Israel's first king. And leading up to this, we have the people sort of in, in disarray. They are um, under the leadership of Samuel. And right before uh, Saul takes, takes over, becomes the king at the behest of the people, the Israelites are at war with the Philistines. 
The Philistines are the Israelites' longtime battle companions throughout these historical books in the Old Testament. And what we see here in this early um, encounter between these two people groups is Israel and the Philistines in war, and Israel taking a big defeat and losing 4,000 men in the process. Now, this is no good, so the Israelites say, what in the world happened? God is supposed to be with us. We've got to come back, and we've got to show people what's up. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh down here, and we're going to march back in to Philistine territory, and we're going to show them. So when the Ark comes back, remember the very presence of God, this important artifact, this important uh, sacred piece of sacred furniture, if you will. You can look all around the space now and see sacred furniture. This is an important thing that symbolizes God's very presence with his people, and the people are jazzed when it shows up in the camp, so much so that they raise a battle cry, so much so that the whole ground begins to shake, so much so that the Philistines across the way say, what in the world is going on? We, we, can't, we can't match with these people anymore because God, the very presence of God, is with them in this place. They're pumped up. They're ready to go. You guys ever played a sports game? I'm really going gonna, gonna to lower the bar here real low, okay? You ever played a game, and you're warming up, and when the other people come into the gym, you think to yourself, Oh no. I don't know. Okay, this is just this is one's just for me then. I remember vividly playing high school basketball and warming up with, with all my friends. And when the doors of the gym open to that like epic song that's just like increases all of this momentum and teenage angst and the people come through this. Maybe even the cheerleaders have this big piece of paper and they come out through and you're like, oh no, they've got a foot and a half on all of us. This is not going to go well. I can even prove this to you because some games, I remember one in particular, it was halftime and the score was 41 to 2, Noah, 41 to 2. And I'll tell you who had the 2, we did. And I'll tell you who scored the 2, not me. It was a guy that never even played. It was so bad they put him in. He just made a layup. We're like, whoa, that's awesome. Because we were totally taken out of our game because these other people showed up. It was like, all right. This is what's happening with Israel and the Philistines. Israel is shouting and saying, our God's going to destroy you. Maybe they even have a battle chant. Our God's going to destroy you. Our God's going to destroy you. Except he didn't. Right? They go to war and 40,000 Israelites die. And not only that, the ark of the Lord, the very presence of God, this thing that has elicited the shouts and the acclamation from the people, it's stolen. That's a bad day on the battlefield. But now what happens? Now the Philistines have the very presence of Israel's God in their camp. And Israel's God isn't having it. So in the story, the people begin to develop tumors. In the story, people begin to feel the pain and anguish of their close proximity to a holy God that is not theirs, so much that they start saying, we've got to get this thing out of here. It's a really fun story. You should read it, 1 Samuel 4 through, uh, 4 through 6. 
But here at, at the end, once they, once they get this ark out of the foreign territory, their last plea, they say, why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when Israel's God dealt harshly with them? Did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Remember the plague narratives when God keeps saying, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And the recalcitrance and the callousness of Pharaoh to allow that to happen, it ended up being really, really, really bad for the Egyptian people. The Philistines now are looking back to this story. We may have defeated the God of the, of the Exodus, but now the God of the Exodus is having his way with us and we need to get this thing out of here. It's a subtle allusion to the Exodus. The retelling of this episode, according to Walter Brueggemann, is shaped by an entry by Yahweh into the oppressive situation governed by the Philistine gods and as a powerful, inexplicable emancipation for Israel. In the same way that God shows up in Egypt to bring his people out of slavery and into freedom, God is showing up here to bring about trouble amongst the Philistine people and to deliver his folks yet again. Perhaps the most magnanimous, yes, I said magnanimous, perhaps the most magnanimous example of the use of the Exodus imagery in the Old Testament surrounds exile. Remember how I did this big song and dance about how important the land was? God has promised the land to his people. However, because of their disobedience, because of their own sinfulness, God removes his people from the land. First, he removes the Israelites from the north because of the Assyrian conquest in about 722 or so. And then a bit later, he removes the Judahites in the south from their land in about 586 or so. And this has devastating consequences for the people. You know how we all have this narrative about America and our founding fathers and our history and stuff? Well, just imagine, if you will, for a moment, Canada gets ticked and they say, we're tired of these Americans. And they show up and they wrangle us all up and they boot us out of our homeland and take us back to Canada. The horror! I like Canada. That was just a joke. I'm sorry if you guys weren't, weren't tracking with me there. But it's a removal from the land that is not anticipated or expected. And here we see Israel being removed from the land. And with it comes this whole narrative. Does God care for us anymore? Will God keep his promises anymore? Does God love us anymore? You see like how they're, they're tied to this land and this promise that God is with them until they're removed from the land. And they begin to wonder, is God still with us anymore. So we have texts like this in the latter sections of Isaiah. Isaiah is an awesome book because it begins with the 8th century prophet Isaiah ben Amos. But then later there's a turn around chapter 40 or so when it is presupposing that Babylonian exile has happened. People have shown up in the land and Israel has been taken out. The Judahites have been taken out and now they're in foreign captivity and they're wondering what in the world are we supposed to do? And that's when we get those glorious words from Isaiah chapter 40 comfort comfort says your God it's this context in which everything has hit the fan 
And now the people are wondering if their God even cares for them. And the way that this is proven throughout these chapters, oftentimes, is an appeal back to the Exodus story. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all of the Babylonians, the people that have put you into exile, that have removed you from the land, the kings that have power over you. I will do away with them. I will bring down, them down as fugitives in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your King. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses and cavalry, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. I know where you are, and I know that you're suffering, but remember the stories of your past when I have shown up for you in power. I will not stand by and let you face this any longer. I am the God of the Exodus. In Isaiah 51, we hear something similar. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Side note. Woo! This one's fun. Come back next week if you want to hear more about this. This is not talking about Rahab the prostitute from Joshua chapter 2. <laughs> that would be a weird flex, as the kids say or used to a month ago. I can't keep up with them. But here, this is Rahab, the sea dragon, the monster of the deep. And God has sliced her up into two because God reigns over chaos. God will not allow the sea monsters to have the last word. Isn't that fun? <laughs> I shouldn't go here, but I'm going to. For people that really love to read the Bible literally, stuff like this throws a wrench into your system. Because what we have here is a picture of God who is one uh, in the creation narrative who's cutting Rahab, that great sea monster or sea dragon, into pieces, who's piercing the monster through to regain power over chaos. That is good, but not our point tonight. In the next verse, he goes on. It's not just about creation. It's about the exodus. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Remember the story of your past, Israel. Remember how God was present with you in the midst of oppression, Remember how we have seen that being used and applied over and over. Whatever it is that you are going through, the God of the Exodus is becoming, catch it, the God of the Exoduses. The God who has delivered his people. That was your moment for amen, or that's good, pastor, but I'll let that one go. The, the God who has taken his people out of slavery and oppression is continuing to do that over and over and over. And we see it reach this climax in Old Testament history when Israel has been booted from the land and they say, where are you? And he says, I'm right here. And remember those stories 
Don't let go of them. I'm about to do a new thing from Isaiah 43. I'm going to keep this story going. And for the people, the Exodus was that thing that they looked back to, that paradigmatic story that gave their whole lives purpose that allowed them to see that God was moving in a direction and he was moving them in that direction as well. The devastation of the exile, it's addressed. Israel's return is another release. It's another exodus, if you will. Walter Brueggemann says, when Israel began telling of its subsequent history about what happened in other times and places and circumstances, Israel characteristically retold all of its experiences through the powerful definitional lens of the Exodus memory. Woo, Walter, yes, bring it. That's so good. Everything that they see is through the lens of a God who redeems his people over and over and over. He continues. Just to expand on this, if you weren't catching my excitement or the oldest Old Testament scholar of all time, Walter Brueggemann's excitement, he says that is Yahweh did not enact these powerful, transformative, liberating verbs. And here he's talking about God as redeemer, God as one who acts for his people. He did not enact these only once at the outset of Israel's life in the world. Rather, Yahweh repeatedly, characteristically, and reliably reliably enacted like transformations in like circumstances throughout Israel's memory. That is so good. It's not just about one thing that happened in history. It's about something that happens in history all the time. God cares about his people he cares about their oppression and he removes them from the powers that be and brings them into freedom and life and hope. As then, so now. Man, and if our prayer was the same, as then, Lord, so now. As you have removed people from slavery and oppression then, do it now and use us as your instruments. So people throughout the Old Testament, they keep looking back to this story. It's a paradigm. It's their foundational, fundamental narrative that gives everything about them purpose. Because their God is the one who redeems. And this whole cycle, it continues on and on. And it goes into the New Testament. So for those that have eyes to see, which is usually not 21st century readers of the biblical text because we're so far removed and because we don't really give two rips about the exodus and we mostly don't even know about the exile. We don't care about land. These aren't our issues. But for people in the first century Jewish culture that would have seen what Jesus was about, they would have been astounded at the implications and the echoes and the illusions that the authors are making back to this foundational, fundamental story of release from oppression. John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. 
And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Remember, in John, this is like a double-edged sword. Jesus doesn't want people that show up that have sign faith. He wants people that show up that have legit faith. They don't just want to, he doesn't want people just to show up to see something cool. He wants people to show up to follow him. Then Jesus went up a mountainside and sat down with his disciples and in a throwaway line that nobody really cares about today because it has no sort of value for us, the author of the book of John says something that Matthew doesn't say and Mark doesn't say and Luke doesn't say. He says the timing of the feeding of the 5,000 is the Jewish Passover. What John is doing He is linking everything that we see when Jesus shows up and he breaks those loaves and he passes amongst the 5,000 people and feeds them. He's saying, read this in light of the Passover, which is a festival dedicated in remembrance to the Exodus. Read this story in light of that moment of release from slavery and oppression into freedom and life. And I bet you'll see something new and cool here Because Jesus, what he's doing, he's he's not just breaking some bread and doing a party trick. Jesus, no, no, no. He's actually leading a new people into the wilderness and feeding them with manna, just like God did in the Old Testament. And Jesus, when when he walks on water, no, 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 he's not just walking on water. It's not just a cool trick. No, 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 no. Jesus is the new Moses who's splitting the sea in two and leading his people to the other side where freedom and life reign. For John, as the author of this story, he's saying, you've got to see this in light of this old story. So if you guys are familiar with this, there's, there's a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? by the Coen brothers. If you don't know much about the Coen brothers, they are fantastic filmmakers and directors and screenwriters. But in the beginning of this movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? If you're hip to it and if you see it, it says, and I should have looked this up for verification, it says something to the effect of, as based on Homer's Odyssey. Fact check that, I might be off, it's close. Brian Evans is saying yes, and Brian Evans works at Barnes and Noble, and they sell movies there, so by proxy, Brian Evans knows everything about movies, and he can verify what I'm saying. The writers are saying, this story makes sense on its own, but it makes a lot more sense when you read it in light of this ancient Greek myth. Because the things that are happening, it should spark your imagination to make Comparisons, And this is what John is doing. The feeding of the 5,000, it's cool on its own. It's a great trick, Jesus. Nice job. But it makes so much more sense when you see it in light of the Passover and the Exodus. Jesus walking on water. That's a cool trick, Jesus. Real nice. Shows that you're God. We'll look at that next week. That's real cool. But it makes so much more sense in light of the Exodus. Jesus is another Moses. He's leading another exodus. He's bringing about another deliverance. So much so that after Jesus feeds all of these people, they say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Linking back a text in Deuteronomy chapter 18, which says there will be a prophet like Moses that shows up. And the people say, it must be this guy. And Jesus removes himself, hangs out on a mountain by himself, 
and then very weirdly and cryptically starts walking on the water the next day to catch up his, with his friends who are rowing a boat with no luck against the strong winds and waves. John, according to N.T. Wright, has made it clear that this chapter, chapter 6, is to be all about the exodus. And so when we have this scene of Jesus walking on the water, we should be prepared to understand it as part of the same story. So when evening comes, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. I don't want to make a big deal about this. But remember in Exodus chapter 14, the way that God separates the waters is through a strong wind. I don't want to make a big deal about that comparison. We don't even have to. But in the text, it says a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. I'm actually going to make more of a big deal about that next week. Okay, so just stick with me. When they had rowed about three or four miles, remember the length of this body of water is about 12 miles and it's seven miles wide at its widest um, spot. They're rowing about three or four miles. They're getting nowhere. They see Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were afraid. But he says to them, it's I. He says to them, for those of you that were here last week, I am. He says to them, I and God have something going on here. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then, weird little note here, only in John. Then... They were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Weird, right? Jesus walking on water gets a lot of play, but Jesus miraculously teleporting a boat with his people on it from one side of the lake to the other side doesn't get much play at all. John's up to something here. But what we're seeing in this passage is a hint or an allusion to the Exodus. And for us, it's subtle because we don't have the eyes to see this. I'm coming in the home stretch here. I'm going to try to connect some of these dots for us because what the gospel authors say, and this isn't just John, although John has these linkages back with the Exodus all over the pages. For the New Testament authors, they're saying Jesus is the new Moses who is leading his people from bondage and slavery into freedom and life. Remember the disciples and all the people at the time, they were thinking that Jesus would become a liberator in the most literal sense of the term, getting rid of Roman oppression, getting rid of the religious structures of the Jews perhaps. He was going to bring freedom uh, and release of captives in that physical, tangible way. But he turns that on its head a bit and he begins to create an, an atmosphere and a moment that's more indicative of spiritual release. It's one of salvation in the sense of forgiveness of sins and partnership with the God of the universe to be about the work that the God of the universe is about. Jesus' exodus is maybe less of a removal of physical, tangible slavery and oppression into literal, tangible freedom and life, and in the story at least, what we see is something that's a bit more spiritual. For those of you where that's not setting, stick with me, because there's more to this story here. But throughout the New Testament, what we see Jesus doing is offering people to experience freedom in a way that seems very different than the people experienced freedom leaving Egypt. 
Again, Peden says, the sea through which the church has passed has remained parted since the coming of Christ and will not go back to its place until our world comes to an end. Wherever men and women come to a saving knowledge of the one Lord Jesus Christ, the exodus in its fullest, most sublime sense is happening. I'm going to hang out here just for a minute. In the midst of the chaos of our lives, in the midst of the slavery that we feel to the oppressors of sin and death, when we follow Jesus, when we align ourselves with the king of the universe, we experience freedom that is paralleled to the freedom of the Israelites leaving Egypt and eventually moving into the promised land. For many of us, as we sit here, I don't know full well if we have experienced that release, that freedom from slavery and oppression, that commitment to Jesus, the commitment that we place in following him and being about the work that he is about. For us, when we follow Jesus, this is our participation. This is, in a very real sense, our reenactment. This is our experience. This is our exodus, where we leave the chains that held us, that King Jesus has broken, and we find ourselves miraculously on the other side of the shore and now experience life and hope. I believe that. But once we receive this, once we experience freedom, part of our calling becomes resisting the empire that holds people down. Part of our calling becomes recognizing the power that we hold, the way that we play into Pharaoh and for his lust for abundance. Part of our calling recognizes the way that we keep people in submission and brokenness and slavery. And because of what Jesus has brought us from, when we realize this, we become agents of restoration and hope and reconciliation. I talk about this weekly. May we become agents of hope and peace and reconciliation, and restoration. And friends, that isn't just something that happens in your prayer closet. That isn't just something that happens when you receive the spiritual benefits of following Jesus. It's us being compelled to action. It's us knowing when to risk it. It's us knowing that the call to follow Jesus demands that we pick up our cross, follow it. We pick up our implementation of our own execution and we drag it wherever Jesus is calling us to go. I don't know what gospel you've heard, but that call of participation is a costly one. In fact, it demands our entire lives. And I'm hopeful 
that as we sit here and we can reflect on our own exodus and the breaking of chains of sin and oppression that held us down and how we have experienced freedom through Jesus, that we aren't content just to have that to ourselves. But as Jesus tells us, we put a big piece of wood on our back and we drag it to our own sweet death. That got dark real fast, didn't it? I believe that's what Jesus is calling us to, to be about the work that he is about here and now and when we see those power structures keeping people down and when we know that we are complicit in some of those, we begin to use our voice to say no more. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.